Hello, and welcome to our last sermon in our Heretic series for weekly worship. I'm so glad you all are here. Will you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn about you and your character. I pray that you would use me and my words to speak to all of us here today. I pray that together as a community, we can learn more about who you are, where you've called us to be, and how we can go there together. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So in the seventh grade, me and my family moved right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And this was a big change because we were coming from Las Vegas, Nevada. I don't know if you knew those things about me, but here you are, fun facts. But just for context, that means that me and my family moved from a place with asphalt, in and out, the desert, you know, cement brick walls, to lush greenness, people with southern accents, and cookout and bojangles. So two very different cultures. Environmentally, it was very much of a shock for young 13-year-old Alexis. But not only that, some other changes happened as well. Me and my twin sister, Caitlin, we started eighth grade that year in public school for the first time. Up until that point, me and her had been homeschooled. So that was interesting, jumping into the chaos and the hierarchical statuses that is middle school. So that was fun to navigate. Um, And also around that time, it was the year 2007, 2008, which is when, as we know, the housing bubble burst. And my family, like thousands of other families across America, definitely fell victim to that. So it was an interesting time in my life. A lot of things trying to figure out a new place, a new school, a new church, trying to understand who I was in this bigger world already in the rural area right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, But for me, uh, there was a lot of changes. And I remember in the spring of that year, I was sitting down and I was thinking to myself, like, man, I feel really alone, which is kind of ironic. My mom always affectionately called me her social butterfly. And, you know, I was reflecting. I was like, I have a lot of friends at school. I have people that I sit with at lunch. And I have a lot of friends at church that I would say hi to. And I would see at Bible studies on Wednesdays. But yet I felt so alone. And I remember reflecting back um, from when I was a kid growing up in church. And I was like, all right, what was I taught? What do I know? And um, one of the things that kind of reverberated in my head, which I often find myself singing nowadays, is this song from like, I think, Hill Song Kids, like curriculum they showed us. But it was the song that says, basically, Jesus is my best friend. He will always be. Nothing will ever change that. And I remember at first finding comfort in that, then, you know, trying to remember what we were taught around it. And I think um, intentionally or not, I then kind of scripted in my head as understanding that Jesus is the only friend that I'll ever need, the only true friend. And sitting in the midst of not having close friendships, not being able to like text people, wasn't really hanging out with people, maybe eating lunch with them, but you know, didn't have that close community. I was like, well, Jesus is here and that's enough, right? So I think for me, at the very least, that created a contentment with what I was at. But I also think it kind of made me a little numb. Um, that continued on for the next couple of years of my life. Me and my family moved around a little bit more, moved back to Vegas for a year, and then finally settled in Arizona where I finished out high school. Um, and during that time, I kind of maintained that same idea. Well, he's my only friend. This is the most important relationship I'll ever have. That's enough, right? It wasn't until college, I'm sure all of you know, where the kind of the chaos of so many people around me, at so many, everyone's trying to find friends. Even you freshmen virtually, I'm sure it kind of feels the same way. Everyone's looking for friendship, looking for community. So it was a little different. Um, and it was the spring of that year um, in 2015, 
I had gotten to know what Chi Alpha was. I was involved in a life group. My life group leader at the time nominated me to do NLIs, Next Level Intensives, which is like the training for new life group leaders in Chi Alpha. And at first I told her I didn't want to do it. I wasn't interested. And she was like, just go to Vision Day, go to Vision Day. Vision Day was the day where they kind of just like introduced to you what it was. And I was like, fine, literally probably just for you. I'll go to Vision Day. So I went, I said hi to some friends that I had there and I sat down and I remember that Blaine came up and he centered his talk that day around this verse. And the verse was Genesis 1:26, and it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then he said these words, We were made to live in community. He showed me for the first time, I feel like I've read that verse so many times growing up in church, but for the first time I was introduced to the plurality of the Trinity before the beginning of time. It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The message version says reflecting our nature. And basically to say, it blew my mind. It was in that moment that I probably felt the deepest validation I've ever felt. I realized that after many, many years of believing that Jesus is the only friend that I'll ever need, I was like, we were made to live in community with other people too. Like it blew my mind. I feel like that lie kind of melted away. And needless to say, it prompted me to do NLIs. I become a life group leader. I'm now working for CAF. No, I'm just kidding. But in all reality, it convinced me for so much more than that. It convinced me that I wanted to live my life for Christ for and with his people. Now, I know my story is probably a little bit atypical. I doubt all of you moved around as much and started the eighth grade at 13 years old, like what's happening. But as I reflect back on my life, I couldn't help but thinking, and maybe you have too, if I was doing everything I was supposed to do, if I was putting myself out there, I was working hard, I was doing all these things that I was led to believe would bring this fulfillment. Why was I still so alone? I went to church and, you know, we we learned about fellowship and community with one another. But again, why was my reality so different? Well, that brings us to our final heresy in this series, individualism. Now, before we start unpacking this ism, How about we check out, see what God says about it through Paul, about his individual and collective creation. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to be going through verses 12 through 27. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open it up and I'm going to read it. So stick with me here. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit. And so we are formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part. It has many parts. Suppose the foot says, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot just stop being part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it also cannot stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts, 
but there is only one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, it is just the opposite. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are the ones we can't do without. The parts that we think are less important, we treat with special honor. The private parts aren't shown, but they are treated with special care. The parts that can be shown don't need special care. But God has put together all the parts of the body, and he has given more honor to the parts that didn't have any. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Individualism is heresy because we were made to live in community, in one body of believers. Definition of a body of people is a group of people who are together or connected in some way. The body is not one member, but many. Speaking of definitions, how about we start breaking down some of those isms. The Oxford Dictionary says that individualism is the habit or principle of being independent and self-reliant. A social theory favoring freedom of action for individuals over the collective. Collectivism is the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. Community is a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. Individualism is heresy. I feel like this text is showing us through a really, really handy metaphor that there is something greater that we were all made for, something greater that we were made to live for and with. And I know this passage, if you grew up in the church, or maybe if you haven't, you know, veggie tales, who knows? I feel like this passage is usually brought up to praise our individuality, our uniqueness, which is all true. I believe God created us for each individual and specific reasons. But what if we read it just a little bit differently? What if we read it as a celebration and the sacredness of the collective persons? In verse 12, we see Paul says, there is one body, but it has many parts, but all its many parts make up one body. It's just a reminder that our bodies, our individuals, aren't the only bodies that matter. And in verse 18, we see it says, God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts. We clearly see here that the uniqueness and the diversity of individuals in the body of Christ are validated and created for a reason, but it goes on. But there's only one body. Therefore, verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, it is just the opposite. We need people. Because in verse 25, all of them will, should, take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares in its joy. We are the body of Christ. Each of us is a part of it. You see, individualism was an ideal, an idol, that I was taught and believed for many, many years of my life. And in my moment of loneliness at age 13, and honestly for years after, I sought truth, but I found it twisted. And doing a little bit of research with the understanding of what individualism is and the idea of being an individualist, we can see that it is at the core of our American ideologies. 
James Bryce, the British ambassador to the United States in 1907 to 1913, wrote in the American Commonwealth, individualism, the love of enterprise, and the pride in personal freedom have been deemed by Americans not only their choicest, but their peculiar and exclusive possession. You see, the problem with individualism is that it is inherently made to create the individual as God. It idolizes the self. And if you think about it in practical terms, if you're the only one in relationship with God, if you're the only one bouncing back ideas and processing things against yourself, then there's a lot of room for error, just simply. And th there is an extreme, as we know. The extreme could be focusing so much on community, so much on the collective, and caring about so many people so often, which is a thousand percent my temptation, majority of the time, that it makes the community our God. We're so concerned with people, what people think about us and so concerned with all of that, honestly, it kind of comes back on ourselves and we lose ourselves within it. So, if individualism is heresy, but we also don't want to overcompensate, now what? How do we do that? Well, I feel like this text shows us how to do it, how to live life in community well. I think it shows us that if we pay attention to the sufferings and the joys that are happening around us, we can't miss the communal suffering and the communal joy. I feel like in this year, as a country, there's a lot of communal grief that is happening. And one day, I hope and I pray that one day we'll be able to celebrate communal joy. But I also know that we will only be able to celebrate communally in joy if we choose to participate in the communal grief right now. And I think there's a couple ways to do that, a couple ways to learn how to live in community and to do it well with one another's. First point for all of our note takers out there. The first point is the phrase, our faith is personal, but it's not private. I also heard that for the first time from Blaine Young, try to find the original author, I don't know, but all you need to know is our faith is personal, but it is not private. As we know, our faith and relationship with Jesus is probably going to be the most important and sacred relationship to us in this earth. The practices of silence and solitude and individual time with our God spent during the day, totally valid, super important. But this is a both and thing. I firmly believe that that is supposed to overflow into community, into relationship with others, to process with people, to talk about what we're learning and the things that we are gaining in our relationship with God. It was meant to be experienced in community too. And it's much easier, I think, to hold our faith privately to ourselves. It reminds me of a conversation I was literally having with God like last week. I was complaining about um, some friends and I was like, honestly, I don't know why I hang out with them. This is very difficult. I literally said, it will be easier for all of us. I was like, I've messed up. It'd be easier for all of us if I wasn't here. And I feel like I heard God said, yes, yes, it will be easier. And for a second, I was like, you made my point. And then I, that thing inside of you, you're like, but it's worth it. Community is messy, but sometimes not only do we need to be reminded that we contribute to that messiness, but man, is it worth it. And doing it alone sucks, honestly. It does. Okay, point number two is that I firmly believe that us as Christians and us as American Christians need to recognize and then stop believing unbiblical lies. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or I need to pull up myself by my bootstraps. 
Self-reliance is inherently unbiblical. We've seen this in the verses above. And as these phrases are core to American ideology, I guess the question is, or is it the making of idols? Does it put ourselves at the center of a story that isn't ours? Maybe the phrase, the more you work, the more successful you'll be, is something you've also re-edited or tell yourself often through college, through classes, through other things like that. And this may be the American dream, but our individual success, wealth, and freedom is not our priority. We were made to be in and fight for our community. And the third point is that we need to seek it out and we need to create it. It's a both and. I believe that we're called to seek out community wherever we go, no matter where we are in life. In college, it probably looks a little bit easier, but college is only four, three to four, five years after that. We have the rest of our lives to live with us. I believe we're called to seek out community wherever we are and to create it wherever we go. And it might be hard. I know for me, I felt very much, I'm like, why isn't this already here for me? It was hard in North Carolina. I was like, I don't see it. But I think that's where the both and comes in. It takes strength to express our need for people, but it is so worth it. It's worth it because to be known by other people is a beautiful thing. It's worth it because community is a mess. I can promise you that. But I think the tension makes God's heart more fully known to us. And there's a unique beauty in it that I wouldn't trade for the world. I think this is the real truth. The truth that I was seeking when I was 13 years old, the truth that I found in the beginning in Genesis 1, when we see the Trinity live together as a they, their plurality coexisted in a giving and taking with a beauty that started it all, three in one. This holy interdependence in which all of us were created to mirror and embody, it's a pretty sweet gift. When I was researching some of this, I came across a commentary where someone said, if we are willing to just set aside our arrogance about not needing other members of the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to thrive together to become what God intends for the church to be. And I think that's what I would want to tell 13-year-old Alexis back in North Carolina, is that you're not doing anything wrong, but your heart's in the right place. You are craving the correct things. You don't need to believe that Jesus will be your only true friend in this life. He will be more beautiful and give you a love that you will never probably experience again to that extent. However, he has given you a body of believers. He has given people that will love you and you'll see it. It might take a little bit, but it'll be so worth it when you see it. And one day we'll be able to know what it is like to become what God intends for us to be. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that for tonight, that we'd be able to reflect and see where our hearts have maybe hardened themselves to the pain that we either have experienced or to our own pride to believe that we in of ourselves are enough. Our relationship with you is enough. I pray that God, you would highlight our, highs, our lives to know that us as individuals, we are created for so much more than that. We are created for a beauty, beautiful body of Christ that involves so many people outside of ourselves and allows us to go into deeper relationship with you. God, give us the strength to recognize where our needs are, the humility to lay our pride down, and honestly, the heart's soft enough to accept all the grace and love that you give us through you, through your son, and through your kids, through your people around us, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.